Hello and welcome to our Season of Creation episodes of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for the Feast of St. Francis. Our fantastic guests this week are the Reverend Pete Nunnally, who is the Senior Associate Rector at St. Mary's, Arlington, Virginia, and leads Wilderness Church, an outdoor walking Eucharist on the banks of the Potomac River. His book on the hidden wisdom of fishing is forthcoming through Broadleaf Books. The Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, who is of Indigenous, Shakin, First Nation, and European heritage. She is Rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Everett, Washington, co-founded the Circles of Color Advocacy Network in the Diocese of Olympia, and serves as the Vice President of the House of Deputies for the Episcopal Church. And last but certainly not least, the marvelous Derek Weston, who is a writer, educator, filmmaker, and podcaster, serving as the Theological Education and Training Coordinator for Creation Justice Ministries. He and his family live outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to join us and be guests on St. Francis Fisse for Prophetic Voices. Why should we as Episcopalians care about creation and do Season of Creation? I think as Episcopalians, part of our understanding of how we incarnate our relationship with God is understanding a very broad spectrum of who is our neighbor. (laughs) And part of who is our neighbor is creation. Mm. It's other species, it's plants, it's our environment, it's air and water. And in my indigenous worldview, all of those things are my relations. And my responsibility to them is to support them because I depend on them. So it needs to be a reciprocal relationship. I need to cultivate all of those things. And not only the ideals of good stewardship that are so important to our faith, but spiritually to recognize that interdependence. Rachel, I I love that idea of thinking about our neighbor as our non-human neighbor. But I also think we need to think about our neighbor in terms of time. And we need to be thinking about our future neighbor. Mm. Our future neighbor is going to inherit this planet as we begin to understand the enormous impact that humanity is having on our created order, on our climate, on severe weather, on the viability of growing land, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera considering our future neighbor, considering the generations that are coming after us is a huge part of what I think it means for us to be followers of Christ. Absolutely. In indigenous culture, recognizing our actions are sacred actions that also preserve the world for those who follow after is very important. The thing that I would say, which is less about being Episcopalian, but more about being Christian, is we have been planted here by God and we share in this home. This is one home that all of us have, all of the creations, all that came before, and all that will come after, like Derek said. The trees and the grasses and the rivers, um, simply by doing what they are doing, they are always worshiping. And so to preserve and protect that which is God's worship, simply by living, I think, is um, perhaps a particular Episcopal call for us. Mm. As we think about the Feast of St. Francis, what stands out for you when you think about St. Francis and his legacy or life? 
for me personally, St. Francis was the first of what I'm glad would become several saints that I would learn about, but the very first as youth who helped bridge my native spirituality to Christian spirituality Mm. and became a gateway for me to have an appreciation that if Christians are truly living out that sacred relationship with God that as St. Francis modeled, then we are understanding that broad sense of community as well. And that community development isn't species centric. (laughs) St. Francis was ready to speak to birds. He was ready. And maybe that was because people weren't listening. (laughs) He he was willing to look kind of crazy to get people to pay attention to the vital understanding of God's gift in all relationship and all beings and our responsibility in that. I'm challenged, you know, the famous image of St. Francis is the idea of his preaching to animals. And I've always wrestled with that idea because it forces the question and begs the question, what if the gospel is not just for the benefit of humanity? Mm. And what if the gospel is for the benefit, not so much that creation needs to be, you know, quote unquote, saved the way that term is often used, but that creation needs the reminders as we do that God loves us, that God cares for us, that God holds us, that God is with us, that God has not abandoned it that God has not abandoned creation because there are so many places in which it may seem that creation has been abandoned largely because of our actions. The idea that the gospel, that the rest of creation is included and enveloped in the story of the gospel, that it's not just an anthropocentric story and message. It challenges my own anthropocentrism and it challenges my own understanding of the gospel in a way that I think is expansive and in a way that I think is inclusive and in a way that really disrupts so much of what of the Christian faith that I grew up with in the best possible ways. Hmm. Absolutely. I think that the power and the message of resurrection it is a message of hope for all beings. And the, the one thing that I always come back to that keeps inspiring me is the resurrection story where in John's gospel, where Mary Magdalene turns from the darkness and her sense of despair and loss in the tomb and turns from that towards the garden around it. And there's this little throwaway phrase where, you know, Jesus says, well, you know, who are you looking for? Why are you weeping? And there's this little phrase that says, she mistook him for the gardener. <laughs> and, and I'm like, that is so powerful. We're so used to talking about Jesus, the good shepherd. Let us talk about Jesus, the good gardener, and how we are invited to be part of a new creation and a new way of relating to God that has nothing to do with Old Testament shames and attitudes toward nature that uh, it has no spirit or soul uh, and is simply here for our use and privileges us. We need to, I think, really ramp down that sense of privilege and get to what stewardship is, which is enormous responsibility that if we're following Christ, we are part of the resurrection power that cultivates and nurtures intentionally. 
Derek, you made me laugh because this St. Francis challenges your anthropocentrism. And as a white dude in a pretty white church, I've always thought that white people in general have to remember that the gospel is not just about them. Mm. <laughs> and that's a challenge for, I think, the Episcopal Church in general. Mm. The witness of St. Francis really calls us back to what he gave up, giving up the acquisitive consumerist lifestyle, wealthy lifestyle, and to go back into simplicity, I think is such a tremendous challenge for people living in our country today, particularly those that have means, that have things about them that are transactionally advantageous. And there is something ancient and wise and healing about our natural world. Mm. God speaking through St. Francis to the animals. In a way, it's a reminder of the fact that they are sanctified. This story I'm going to tell is not that, but when we do our worship outside, it's along the banks of the Potomac River. And during a homily, which is a participatory homily, so people listen to the gospel and they share what struck them, the biggest beaver you've ever seen swam up and smacked his beaver tail down on the ground and or in the water like in the he was in the water and we all just turned you know and the beaver is saying like i am here and i think was also saying you are in my house right but it was a beautiful beautiful moment where god spoke to us through creation I really appreciate that you brought up St. Francis's rule of simplicity, because in that, I think, is a message today of living sustainably. Mm. That was one of the things that I thought about when I thought of St. Francis's legacy was about his life of poverty and how, like, what we could learn from that is the living simply so others can simply live. But also, if we are living in that space, we're more likely to understand or observe or experience similar things to uh, other folks who are in poverty experience as well. And I think sometimes if we just stay up in our Episcopal ivory towers, if there is such a thing, right, that we might not always see what happens. What liturgical ideas do you have for celebrating the St. Francis feast day? I know a lot of people do blessing of the animals, but what are some other, uh, and worshiping outside, what are some other ideas folks have? So I'll bless anything. <laughs> Truly. I also offer to people, you know, all that week, if they want a home visit to come bless the horses in their stalls or the mice and gerbils in their little cages or habit trails. It's just about how to connect people to a sense of, again, that relationality with what they live with and to also move people from thinking about animals simply as pets, but when we know so much more that as we get close to them, we do recognize that they're family. I don't know if it's too early in the uh, recording to out myself. I am not Episcopalian, and uh, I don't know how I looked past the goalie here. I just happen to be friends with a lot of Episcopalians, but in my spending time with Episcopalian friends, I've seen the blessing of the animals, but I've I recently saw something in a worship service that really blessed me, which was having a service of remembrance for animals that have passed away as part of the worship service. Hmm. Uh. You know, people bringing pictures of 
dogs that they've lost and cats that they've lost and, and you know, kids bringing, you know, memories of goldfish and, and, and to not just honor the animals that are with us physically, but to honor the animals whose spirits remain with us and whose spirits have impacted our spirits and whose souls have impacted our souls and how the memories that they've brought into our lives, we carry them forward was surprisingly meaningful to me Mm. in a way that caught me off guard in a way that that was completely disarming again it was just one of those things that you know you have these moments that make you reevaluate so much of of your theology and and this was one of those i would say in addition to having those moments of blessing animals which i absolutely think should happen but i think also having space for animal remembrances could be a really powerful moment for people in worship. Absolutely. I'm so excited about that. That's exactly what we include at my church. We have a side altar where we set up that memorial. We invite people to bring those things. And then during the service before the blessing of animals, we invite up the humans who've left those memorials and we offer them anointing. I love that. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between worshiping outside and in worshiping in a wild place. Mm-hmm. What I try to do is bring our people far away. Every now and again, they'll be like, well, what about this park over here? And I'm like, we can't go to a park where like they prune the rose bushes. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like what's the point of that? We want to go to the parks and places where the trees have fallen years ago and are still there giving themselves to the ground, um, to the earth. I wonder if in the life of a worshiping community to honor St. Francis, maybe a fast, some kind of fast during that week from screens or television or things that complicate our lives. I've never heard of honoring the pets that we've had and that have gone on to greater glory. I am so moved by thinking about honoring the past pets that I have had and lost. One of the things in that day when we take a special collection and we donate that to our area, our county animal shelter. Hmm. I was thinking about something with poverty too, or like what can we give up and what might that look like? Is it like for one month we do like that poverty challenge where we live on whatever they give for folks on welfare, like what they're allotted for food each month. And can we live on that for a month? And what would it look like if our church did that and that money goes somewhere? I could see something. Like that's a lot to ask people to do it all the time. Not everybody's going to be willing to do that, but we could do it for like a month or a week or, you know, try and see what folks are willing to commit to. Well, and I remember last year, the first time we were kind of back doing this, that people also spontaneously brought like bags of dog food and cat food and cans when they heard that we were going to be giving things to the animal shelter. So let's sort of shift over to the gospel. and. This is sort of a short snippet of that Matthew gospel. I love the interplay between what was revealed and what is hidden. And so I'm wondering like what things have been hidden from us that we might not see that you think has been revealed to others or what things have been revealed to us that might not be seen by others. Last year, I was asked by some real concerned, environmentally oriented Episcopalians in my diocese who were, and I'm just going to say they were all white people, and they recognized for themselves that they 
we're not finding guidance around how to develop a meaningful connectivity to the environment around them without feeling like they were appropriating indigenous prayers or indigenous ways of being with that environment, like smudging or pray, you know, songs, etc. So they were really struggling with how to spiritually, ritually affirm and recognize that relationship. And they didn't want to do appropriation. So I developed an eight-part conversation that looked at both Western science and the advancements around that really recognized that deep connectivity with everything in the universe and with indigenous voice, including Bishop Stephen Charleston's work. And just what I hoped to help kind of weave together a truly Christian sensibility that reconnects Western church and worldview with the environment in ways that are authentic to that view. So in some ways, I think it's like the mechanism by which we observe the reality around us can impact that reality. It either filters out the connection, the deep spiritual connection, because it can't see it, and it's within its categories of thought. (laughs) And it's like restoring the ability to recognize spirit present in creation without getting you know, tripped up in these ideas of pantheism that are real anchors in Western thought Hmm. to kind of liberate the idea that God in spirit is very much present in the garden as the garden. I was thinking about if we're just sort of sit in our silos, which why I'm so glad, Derek, that you're here and not Episcopalian, right? We have to have all these different groups of people to come because if we just sit in our silos, we can't always think outside of our own box because we only know what our box is. And so having a diversity of guests or having relationships with folks across a wide range of everything, right, in our own lives, races and ethnicities and sexual orientations and having relationships with creation, you know, then we're able to have a greater understanding of what's around us. One of the things that I'm very aware of in both directions as I sit smack dab in the middle of being middle-aged, I see things differently through the eyes of my children Mm. and their friends and how I see things differently through the eyes of elders and senior citizens. And I'm more aware of it with my kids and recognizing that they're growing up, even though I have the experience of, you know, they're, my kids range from almost 16 to 11. While I have the experience of being a teenager, I don't have the experience of being a teenager in 2023. And to be a teenager in 2023 is a wildly different animal than what it meant to be a teenager in the 90s. And they are far more plugged in, both kind of literally and figuratively. They're more attuned with what's going on in the world around them. And they have really never known a time that hasn't been tumultuous. Hmm. And like that tumult being very palpable in terms of financial crisis, in terms of political instability, in terms of climate crisis. And that has affected the way that they live in the world. And they're 
overall discontent with the way that the world is. And so even when I kind of think that I am coming from a space of working to make the world better or working to bring light into places, I'm far more aware of the fact that they kind of have this experience of almost like a constant chaos that has shaped their lives with no sign of things getting better and no hope that they will, no definite hope that they will. Seeing the world through those eyes, I mean, for better or for worse, my generation and the generations before me have all kind of been implanted with this idea that things will get better and we can improve things and progress and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just don't see that in my kids or their peers. Mm. There's more about how do we survive and how do we build connections and how do we find oases? And I've been thinking of Deborah Reinstra's book, Refugia Faith, and how do we find these spaces of refugia that are sheltered from the storm and that are sheltered from the chaos, where we find community, where we find mutual aid, where we find ways of, of existing that the society doesn't always allow for. And it's humbling to look at the world through their eyes. It's incredibly humbling. I sometimes think they have a more realistic perspective on the world than I do. To follow up on the idea that Derek has introduced, I know I had young adults come to me with the concerns he's raised, and I see it as climate grief. Hmm. One young person said to me, why should I make big plans for my life? Because 20 years from now, humanity might not even survive any of the things that we're doing. And in this Anthropocene era, we could be one of the species that go away. And maybe we should. Hmm. And she just had this sense of despair about why should she even plan long term for her own life, much less have children. I think there's a response to be had in this St. Francis Day of bringing the hope of resurrection that is essentially a part of the cycle of creation that we can, again, be participating in and foster. It is the practice of hope. And I think that our youth and young adults are really struggling to see that hope. And there's amazing work going on. I recently came across the opportunity to experience the first ever short film that's a virtual reality film about the environment. And it's done by the Amazon Rainforest Initiative. I highly recommend that. You can go find that website and schedule them to think about using that resource, either at a diocesan convention time where they could just set up a booth and offer that, or to even center it as an interfaith opportunity and experience in your area. It's powerful. It's an indigenous Amazon woman who narrate this amazing virtual reality experience of the Amazon rainforest. That sounds incredible. Agreed with both of you about the young people knowing something that maybe the older people don't know. And I served as a chaplain at the Presiding Bishop's Festival of Love in Baltimore recently as an eco-grief chaplain. I was shocked at how many people were in the room in all of the ages. It wasn't just young people, but when we see articles and it's weekly you know, that this window of irreversible change gets smaller and smaller. And 
when we see things that say 50 years out, you know, or 60 years by 20, you know, 60, the world will be X, Y, and Z. We likely will not be there, but they will. They will. So there's an immediacy to living in the world today that I think older folks need to learn from and be around. This might be a fan fiction take on your question, Shaniqua, but the first two weeks of the COVID shutdown, we found out something about the natural world and its power that I think we had taken for granted. It is more powerful than us. And it took only a few days for the air quality in Los Angeles to be amazing, for the wild animals to come back into places where they used to be before we were here. And that is, for me, a reason to hope, like you said, Rachel. You know, there is a date that we have where plastic will break down. It's a long time. It's a really, really long time. But it eventually will. And this force that we live in and with is always acting and always generating. And this is, we should get rid of plastics. Let's just say that out loud. This creation, which is creating, it's a magnificent miracle every single day, every piece of it. I think it knows more than we do. I think environmental activism is at this point a spiritual practice and necessity. A friend of mine who is a chemist was talking about how after the testing of the nuclear bombs at Los Alamos, and we've just kind of seen that in this recent film, since then, every U.S. soil sample from wherever it is in the country contains strontium-90. So there's even in that awareness is we need to keep advocating against weapons of mass destruction even that do long-term damage. That advocacy can take so many different expressions. And I think that's part of where when people say, well, what can we do? A large part of what we need to do is to become very civically active. Derek, you talked about some of the burdens that your children have been carrying. What burdens do you think that we are carrying total? And another question kind of is like, what burdens do you think that we need to lay down? I'm thinking of the burden specifically for myself anyway, of like the need to like keep up with the Joneses, whatever, like if somebody else gets a new car, do I need to have that new car? If they got a TV, do I need to have a TV? That's the burden of consumerism, maybe. I will say one burden that I think we're carrying and that we need to lay down. We as Americans carry the burden of individualism. Hmm. And particularly for those of us who are socially conscious, the way that individualism manifests itself in that I have to save the world, that I have to do my part, that I have to do the thing. And it's one of the places where I appreciate my Southern friends because the English glosses of the Bible do us a disservice, even though we have this wonderful second person plural, which is y'all. Because most often when the Bible says you, particularly in the New Testament, what it's actually saying is y'all. Mm-hmm. And we need to hear the things that God is calling us all to, and that God is calling us to as communities, not as individuals, not as people who are carrying the burden of, oh my goodness, I have to save the world on my own. I think it's a burden that we carry. I think it's a burden lots of us, lots of people of faith carry. 
it's a burden that a lot of environmentalists carry and a lot of activists carry this idea of, and it's actually one of the insidious things that the energy companies has done to us, that we have to monitor our carbon footprint and we have to monitor our emissions, even though they're the ones who are doing the bulk of the damage. You know, mm. they're the ones who invented those metrics to blame shift onto the consumer instead of taking responsibility for their own actions. We need to lay down the burden of individual saviorism and recognize that what's called for us is collective action. And actually, we should be liberated to collective action. One of the biggest perpetrators is also the American Bottling Company and the way that they have advertised and put it upon the consumer, the responsibility of recycling Mm. uh, plastic, glass, and aluminum, that is on them. They need to be taking responsibility for making containers that are environmentally friendly and break down and actually serve the environment Mm. instead of abuse it by using petrochemicals. And I will say that very clearly about the American Bottling Company. Amen. I'm also thinking about some of the other burdens that we might be carrying, like the burden of thinking that there can only be one right way of doing something, or maybe the burden of what it means to be a man or a woman, or the burden of the binary, or even like internal, the burden of internalized racism or homophobia or sexism, or all those internalized oppressions that we put on ourselves from society. We could lay those down. Just the burden that capitalism puts on us of never knowing what enough is Mm. like when do i have enough money when do i when do i have enough that i am taking care of myself and my family when do i have you know when have i worked hard enough when have i achieved enough when have i been educated enough when have i you know the enoughness we have to be released from the burden of inadequacy because i think none of us thinks we're enough (laughs) None of us Mm. thinks that we're Mm -hmm. adequate. None of us thinks that we're sufficient to the task that the world has for us. And we need to be released of that burden as well. Well, and in the spirit of trying to keep up with the Joneses, as Shanique said, I also am loving all these pop-up repair shops and young adults and elders getting back into reupholstering, learning some of those skills that uh, the generations that had to live through the economic depression and post-war when so many few things were available to them is getting back those skills. How do you weave a new wicker seat for your chair? (laughs) How do you upholster this thing? Uh, I think all of that are things that we should absolutely be offering and teaching again to the general public through our universities. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. What does a Jesus yoke look like? We know that it says that it's the yoke is easy, but what do you think it looks like to have a Jesus type of yoke? I think again, like St. Francis for me, it's being willing to look a little crazy mm. in terms of offering different norms and different priorities. And there's been many times when Everything from being ridiculed to being ignored to being shut out of conversations and the drawing room, as it were, have all sort of been prices to pay to what I think is preaching the authentic gospel of simplicity and of prioritizing life in all its diversity beyond just this species-centric worldview. A lot of that just gets, I think it's threatening to a dominant culture system of exploitation. 
because it asks for moral responsibility. I often think in movie quotes and movie scenes, and as you asked that question, a scene popped in my head from the movie Gladiator. Commodus, Joaquin Phoenix's character, looks at his nephew as he's sleeping at one point. And he, I'm going to probably butcher this a little bit, but he says he sleeps well because he knows that he's loved. Hmm. And I wonder if Jesus's burden was light. Let's not confuse ourselves. Jesus certainly had stressors in his life, (laughs) including the 12 people he spent most time with. But he lived with a freedom of a person who knew that he was loved who knew that he couldn't lose God's love, he couldn't earn God's love, he didn't have to earn God's love, and because of that, was able to be so authentically himself, so able to be so so very real, so very comfortable in his own skin. Back to that burden question, so many of our burdens are external burdens of the expectations of others of how they expect us to live and how they expect us to move through the world. And if we can just move through the world as genuinely as our truest, most authentic selves, as the realest versions of us, and know that we're still loved, we would move with so much more ease and so much more freedom. Hmm. We would sleep well because we know that we're loved. That's really what Jesus's yoke would probably look like for all of us. I'm reminded of people who have given up social media, and I think about it all the time, but I don't do it, but I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) For people who do, and the reason that that's a dream that a lot of people think about, like, God, I really need to give this up, is because we know that there is something harmful about it. It draws out our comparative nature. Um, I think doom scrolling is a good phrase to sort of describe what happens sometimes. But then to give that up, we would feel lighter, I think. It's cutting something out in this, you know, Jesus is always saying stuff that's the opposite of what he said before, because we're told, take up your cross and follow me, you will receive this. Do you really want to drink from this cup? He says, you know, because this is, and yet I think what we have here is an invitation into an alternative way of being Mm. and to be yoked based on the radical love of Christ. And I have an image of when I was a camp counselor walking down the hill and the campers would be arms over shoulders as they walked in these big lines of people walking down the hill. And I think to be yoked with Christ means to be yoked with one another, uh, as Rachel and Derek have both said. Derek, you've planted this idea of time in my head, and I talk about it every once in a while, never in this context, but I was thinking about like communion as P as you were talking about that image of everybody yoked together. And I think about like the communion of saints, you know, when I take communion, if I kneel, sometimes I stand, but, you know, I'm not just there with the people that are next to me in church that Sunday, but I'm there with, you know, my grandma and my grandpa and, you know, my nieces and nephews that haven't even been born yet, like all of that kind of stuff, we're all taking communion together in this beautiful image. And now I can think in imagine in a new way, thinking all of creation is there with us too, right? Including the animals that have died. What provides rest for your soul? Or where do you find rest for your soul? Completely in nature. I have 
to make sure that I include unstructured time outside every week. <laughs> and I preserve Mondays as a Sabbath day in my work week. And I always say, one way or another, I'm going to be spending time outside. I also make sure that's true when it comes to my prayer life. Hmm. My prayer life is not consigned to the indoors of a church sanctuary on a Sunday morning or in my home office for morning and evening prayer. <laughs> that I honor my indigenous prayer forms by being outside with my tobacco or sage or simply by myself and speak directly to creation in my prayer and acknowledge that relationship and which is, has a sacred nature and is part of my daily life that sustains me in very real ways and in spiritual ways that are as equally as real and important. For me, it's to be on the water mm. or close to it. I've heard it said, I think it's a, a hymn in a different tradition that the ocean is a call to worship and everybody knows that. You don't have to be a church person to know that there is something about being on the edge of the ocean, on the edge of where, as Rachel Carson might say, that life first emerged from the sea, that it is mesmerizing and holy. And so for me, I need to be on the edge of the water or uh, in it or on top of it somewhere to really find that the deep peace. And I read the creation story backwards the other day, the seven-day creation story, and it never occurred to me, but the water was there in the beginning. Mm. Before God begins to create anything, water is a wind from God sweeps over the face of the waters. Here in the Pacific Northwest where I am, we have these amazing old cedar trees and old hemlocks and I hear so many times people who say they're not religious, but they're spiritual <laughs> in this area, the nun zone. And they all talk about how the forest is an important cathedral. Mm. Yeah. I'll echo that creation is a space in which I find rest for my soul, very specifically my garden, because my garden is the space where. I am cooperating with God hmm. and I'm co-creating with God. It's the space where, where I least question if God and I are on the same team. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> and, and I need that. My wife and I, we were in Wyoming a couple years ago, it was my, or a couple weeks ago. Um, it's the first time I've ever been there. We're at a ranch. We're out in the middle of, nowhere in in some ways and at ring lake ranch which is beautiful the stars just felt close and we could see the milky way mm. and there's something about usually i experienced this at the ocean but i experienced it in, in in looking at the stars when i was at wyoming it's the feeling small in a good way is the only way i can describe it it's feeling small in a good way and when I am by the ocean and when I was a couple of weeks ago having this experience of the stars feeling like almost close enough to touch, I had that experience of 
resting in the hands of God, of being a very, very small thing in a good way. When you've experienced that smallness, you experience, it's not up to me. I'm not in control. Something else, someone else is in control. And it's going to be okay. That has always been okay. Those very specific experiences of nature are where my soul finds rest. The lecturer and author Brian Swim, who worked closely with Thomas Berry, wrote The Universe Story. And you can also find that on a series of his lectures on a DVD. And one of the things he says is imagining ourselves under that night sky as we lay on our back on the grass and looking at the universe. He said, now imagine and remember that it's only because of the force of gravity that the earth is holding you to herself Hmm. and keeps you from falling. Because on a round sphere, there's no up. It's just falling out. And so the idea of the earth is holding us here and wants us here has been an important image for me in my spiritual life. And it echoes that idea of God's creation, embracing us, God embracing us through creation. I love the Black Hills, which part of the Black Hills is actually in Wyoming. As Lakota people, where our creation story says we came out of the earth at, and a lot of important sacred spaces are there. And so that's always where I go to like recharge my spiritual batteries. But I think also like when it's dark out and there's not a lot of light pollution, you can see the Milky Way. And that's in our way, all those little specks of stars on the Milky Way are the spirits of our ancestors as they're journeying to the spirit world. They go on that walk on that space. I want to just spend a moment talking about Job. And I love the conversation, you know, God is asking about, do you know where the mountain goats give birth? And do you see all these things? And it's sort of asking, do we understand creation? And one of the things I'm wondering, because he's talking about wild animals, I'm wondering what would a wild versus a domesticated Christianity look like? What do you think might the differences of those two things be? Or what are the differences of those two things? I think that a wild faith would be unpredictable. And that's the problem. An unpredictable faith scares us. Hmm. An unpredictable experience of God is terrifying. If I have this unpredictable experience of God, I might sell all of my possessions <laughs> and, and, and give the money to the poor. Right. Um, and and oh, no, 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 thank you. I may try to walk on water. I may, I may do all sorts of crazy things. Again, I think it would bring us closer to an authenticity. It would bring us closer to a an authentic expression our traditions are beautiful, whether I'm in the Episcopal Church or in the Presbyterian Church that I'm a part of. We have beautiful traditions that we've handed down for generations, but they are prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And they tell us this is what worship is. And they don't give us the space to explore the ways that we actually express God's value and worth in our lives. And I think a wild faith would probably go off script. It would probably go off book, probably go off the printed page. 
it would look a lot more like the ways that we experience our rawest emotions, whether that's raw joy, whether that's raw pain. And that's hard to do in community. The vulnerability that requires, that's what a wild church would look like. I think from the time of the first century church and all of the conflicts with those who were still really attached to the covenant of the law with what Jesus was sort of saying, I think from that moment forward, I see so many ways throughout the development of Christianity that emperors, leaders, popes, etc., many, many people have tried to put Jesus back in a box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of effort to literally keep Jesus in a locked box, even if you simply think of the image of the tabernacle in any church sanctuary where there's a little log box and Jesus and the spirit are supposed to be in there, (laughs) right? You bless the stuff and it's supposed to stay there. So I think that just to me is emblematic of, you know, even the sanctuary light that says, this is where the holy is. (laughs) The, The stars at night remind us the holy is everywhere. And I think if we had that truly wild spirituality of God, we would have to have to accept on a deep level, the radical love of God, the radical presence of God, the radical potential that we each have inside of ourselves as co-creators with God. (laughs) I just think we would have to deal with that. And so there's a lot of fear that keeps wanting to reemerge, to put God back in a box. And I think that we even see that struggle in our nation around the identity of Christianity right now. Mm -hmm. Whole lot of folk are not comfortable with a wild God, a wild Christ that so radically is willing to be part of every being's life towards salvation for all life. Preach it. Preach it. (laughs) (laughs) A buddy of mine came from the evangelical church and he said he eventually found the BCP and he loved like the rubrics and all of that. And he said, and then I went to an Episcopal church service and I thought, oh no, this is how you're doing that? <laughs> I know. Oh my goodness. And I was like, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> and it, it's not awful, but you're laughing for a reason. Right, right. It's good to have uh, some boundaries and some guidelines, you know, uh, it really is. But we are wild people. When we limit God, we limit the God within us. And I think all of our hearts and our souls are, especially in this culture we live in, are dying. And I mean, white people are the worst. Like, can we just live a free life with God? What we have done because the fear, like you say, Rachel, is so much stronger um, that we just say, this is it. This is how you do it. And if you don't do it this way, then it's not really God and it's not really worship. And you're not really a Christian. So liberation, baby, out of the church, out of our structures. I never say this, but the other day when we do Eucharist, I held up the elements outdoors in, in, in the wilderness church. And I said, these are the gifts of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you. And that phrase has always bothered me. So I paused and I said, and take these and remember that Christ lives for you. Mm. And I was like, because that's actually what this is. This isn't like, remember Christ died. Like this, the Eucharist is that Christ is living for, with, and in you now. 
and always eternal life. That's what eternal life is. But I never would have got to that if I was just reading the book. Right. Mm. There's so many ways where St. Francis challenged the norms of his family and his paternal expectations that were thrust upon him to go be a merchant for the rest of his life. <laughs> and, and in which he also rebels after coming back from war against the violence that that represented. And he seeks peace with the Muslim leaders rather than war. There's just so many ways where he represents this is not how it's supposed to be. And in challenging that is that ridicule and ostracization. And yet today, I think he's one of our most important legacies of saints. A wild Christianity would also let go of this idea that there's only one way to do it. That's one of the things I complain about is like the Western church that was brought to America, you know, they have this, the righteousness of the white Jesus that everybody sees, right? And it's like... Did you say righteousness? Righteousness. Yeah, that's like all the... All the <laughs> I didn't coin that phrase, somebody else. It was like all of the white Jesuses you see or all the things that are there. And it's like, what they forgot was Paul said, you don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. And so each culture, it's going to look different for each culture, whatever that might be. Christianity will look different. And that is the wild Christianity. I remember my elders saying, sacred things aren't meant to be understood. They're meant to be experienced. And so I think the more that we try to understand the more we try and do that, the less we're going to understand it. And the more we should really be focusing on just experiencing it and how it makes us feel. The other week I attended the World Parliament of Religions that was held in Chicago. I had never been. And one of the things that was offered among many kinds of worship experiences was Reverend Matthew Fox, who, as you know, is an Episcopal priest now, received from the Catholic Church, and very much centered on creation spirituality. One of the pieces that he had was a, called a creation mass, and I didn't know what to expect. It was an interfaith kind of service. He incorporated leaders representing Judaism, uh, different neo-pagan groups, Wicca, and himself, and also had these wonderful puppets that were sort of illuminated displays on tall posts. And I was invited to be one of the puppeteers, and each of these were these illuminated animals. And there was a moment as we we're leading up to actually blessing a bread and wine that the religious leaders all gathered around this center round table and the puppeteers all brought their illuminated animals. So it's all dark in here. You only see these. You hear the words coming and you see this ongoing slideshow of pictures of the universe and the earth and the universe as it's kind of going on in this corner. There were over 200 people in this giant room in the dark. And I, one part of me was watching what was happening at the presider table going, what? You have a rabbi blessing bread and, and you have a, a Wiccan person raising the chalice? You know, and I was a part of me was going, um, 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 wait. <laughs> and another part of me was going, This is completely cool. <laughs> so I also opening our hearts and minds to those kinds of creative expression. Beautiful. What tips or ideas do you have for preaching the feast of Saint Francis? Be bold. Don't water it down. I was thinking about trying to write a sermon from the perspective of an animal or of creation as though that would preach the sermon. I wonder what that would like. What would a bear preach to us if it was preaching the good news and what a bear might perceive as good news? You know what I mean? I was just anyway thinking of something like that and trying to shift it around. And if you preach on Job, 
think about this wild versus domesticated idea or, or how do we understand the animals, why it's important. If you preach on the gospel, I've preached on that one before, like a lot of like what yokes do we need to lay down? What do we need to take up and what might it look like? Well, the first thing that came to me, Shanique, when you asked that question, I've never asked this of my congregation. And I wonder about asking them to walk into the service discalcal. So like Francis, taking off your shoes and recognizing that you're walking on holy mm. ground and the earth is holy ground all the time, everywhere. Our conversation has been so wide ranging. You know, I think first and foremost, I don't know that you can, you can rightly celebrate St. Francis indoors. Mm. I think even going farther than that, there's a question of asking, how do we unburden ourselves? What do we strip away? Mm. Really having this kind of incredibly minimalist worship experience of like, what are the essentials of worship? And in some ways, it's us and God and not a whole lot more. And thinking about if we bring ourselves as authentically as we can to an outside space to worship, what would kind of organically come to the surface? What kind of praise would come? What kind of lament would come? What kind of prayers would come? What kind of creatures would come? I'm having this tug of war uh, about the spotted lantern flies, right? Like, for those of you who don't know, we are experiencing this invasive species, the spotted lantern fly. And this, the recommendation is this, if you see it, squash it. And like, that is so antithetical to my understanding of how we're supposed to be in nature. And I could just imagine like an outdoor worship space where like all of a sudden all these spotted lantern flies just kind of come and, and congregate with us. It reminds me of the cicadas of a, a couple of years ago. But what would it look like for us to have stripped away all of the barriers that we put up between us and each other and us and God? Hmm. Barriers of words, barriers of music, barriers of etiquette, barriers of liturgy even. And allow ourselves to just be as we are, who we are in that space. So my congregation is in a very urban setting, and we also are very committed to live streaming our services. So all those two things make it complex, even if we try to go to our local park, which we've done at times. But now that we want to be including those who are not able to attend in person, I'll need to figure out how to do it in our sanctuary space. And what this calls to mind is how do we bring creation inside in all its forms. Mm. And now I'm thinking to include a procession of all kinds of plants and, you know, anything we can think of to bring forward and decorate around the high altar and low altar and make that a part of our remembrance that we are participants in making creation happen in a good way. I was part of a liturgy conference that was focused on liturgical responses to the climate crisis a few weeks ago, and we worshiped outside all the time. One element was that for one of them, for the Eucharist, rather than having an altar, we had four people, two of them uh, standing back to back with two others, and they were holding the elements. And so people being the altar holding the elements uh, was something that was really mind-blowing for some of us. 
Thank you so much for being willing to be a part of this podcast, sharing your wisdom and stories and experiences. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners do too. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a privilege to be with you all. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Rachel and Derek. Let's be friends. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. If you want to learn more about creation care, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash creation hyphen care. Thanks to our guests, Pete, Rachel, and Derek. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you found this to be a place where you could lay your burden down, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. This is our last episode in our Creation Care season, but look for our Advent and Christmas season coming this fall. Until then, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec slash lovealways.